because we are so desperate for a Savior to atone for our sins, as guilty as we are. Even now, as we walk regenerate in the power of your Holy Spirit, being changed to be more like you every day, we still perpetuate sin in this world. We still propagate sin in this world. Have mercy on us, Father. Keep us at the foot of your cross. Salvation is not, um, it's not a doctrine from which we graduate the longer we are with you. Keep the cross that saves us, the Jesus that saves us, the blood that saves us at the center of our lives and at the top of our priorities, at the top of our prayers. Thank you, Jesus, for your generous, gracious salvation upon which we stand this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Good evening, everyone. We're going to be picking up tonight in Ezekiel, chapter 12. We've been talking about uh, Ezekiel's ministry and how distinctively uh, he is the prophet who is called to performance prophecy, to act out parabolically or symbolically uh, what's going to happen. And remember, as we get into another one of these performance pieces that God gives uh, for Ezekiel to do tonight, Remember that Ezekiel is still in this disciplinary period of time where he only opens his mouth publicly when the Lord gives him a message. And he only leaves his house when God lets him leave. And so these pantomimes uh, are especially uh, poignant when we keep that in mind. However, we'll notice very quickly tonight, watch for it as we read a second reason uh, why Ezekiel's ministry is filled with more acting out than verbalizing uh, his prophecies, the oracles that God has given him. Let's pick up in chapter 12, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house who have eyes to see but do not see, who have ears to hear but hear not, for they are a rebellious house. And so he opens up here and he reminds him that the audience that he's been given, the house of Israel, the Jews, specifically the ones in exile with Ezekiel and the ones back in Jerusalem for the time being. And he says they have eyes but they can't see. They have ears uh, but they cannot hear. In fact, this language is very similar to the critique that Isaiah is given by God about people, the one that is quoted in the New Testament and used as a reason why Jesus speaks in parables. 
Um, but notice here, he's laying this foundation to explain the command that he's to give. In other words, one of the reasons he's called to act out the word of God is because the Jews are so hard-headed. They're so dense that they're not hearing it when it's spoken, and so he's going to make it manifest to them uh, through this physical performance. Um, we find many occasions in the Bible where God, through his prophets, takes a side door into the truth. Probably the obvious and most clean example is when Nathan comes to David to confront him about his sin with Bathsheba. And Nathan doesn't just walk into the throne room and say, hey, David, I heard you slept with a woman that wasn't your wife. Instead, he walks in and he says, hey, David, a man had a sheep and not much else. He tells him a story. He sets a parallel, which, by the way, is where we get our word parable, par, uh, parable from, to lay alongside, okay? And the idea of why these are effective is because you get the message before you can cover your eyes. You get the message before you put your fingers in the ear. You get the message before you make your excuses and your self-justification. You come all the way to the conclusion and you go, that's right. And then all that's required, like Nathan with David, is reminding that we're talking about you. You are the man, David. You're the one that I'm talking about. And so, here he's given his instructions. Verse 3, as for you, son of man, prepare for yourself an exile's baggage and go into exile by day in their sight. You shall go like an exile from your place to another place in their sight. Perhaps they will understand, though they are a rebellious house. Now, remember, the setting is actually really interesting of this because Ezekiel's audience are exiles. What he's about to act out, they've all been through personally. They all remember what it was like in the days of Jehoiachin as king to be deported, to pack their bags hastily, to be marched out of the city, to go on a long journey. That's why they are where they are. And so you can, you can put yourself in their place, and here's Ezekiel, who puts together an audience and then gathers his stuff rushed-like, uh, rushed pulls it into a bag, throws it over his shoulder, and leaves his house and probably walks out of the city where these Jews are living for a distance that's long enough for them to get the point. Now, do you recognize at this point, without any spoken word, the ambiguity Everybody's curious what it is Ezekiel's doing. They know that he calls himself a prophet. They've heard his earlier messages. They've seen, you know, his 390-day performance of laying on one side and then another 40 days of laying on the other side. And so it's, oh, what's Ezekiel doing today, right? They see him pack the bag. And you can imagine the conversation that's going on. Okay, you know, if it was... Um, if it was one of those parlor games we play, the guessing, you know, it'd be like, exiles, that's us. He, he must be talking about us, right? But for them, this is a past tense experience, but as we will see, the prophecy is of future value. And so he's to bring out their bag in their sight, verse 4. You should bring out your baggage by day in their sight as baggage for exile, and you should go out for yourself at evening in their sight as those who must go into exile. Okay, so he has a matinee performance and an evening performance. The evening performance is a little bit different. Look here in verse 5. In their sight, dig through the wall and bring your baggage out through it. 
In their sight, you shall lift the baggage upon your shoulder and carry it out at dusk. You shall cover your face that you may not see the land, for I've made you a sign for the house of Israel. Okay, so in this case, the first thing he's to do here is to dig a hole through the wall of his house. Okay, this house would have been loose stones covered in plaster, and so he breaks the plaster and then removes the stones and makes a hole wide enough to climb through, and then he grabs his bag, and just like he did in the morning, he carries it uh, on his shoulder out of the city. It also adds here that he's to cover his face in such a way that he cannot see the land. Now, maybe this is just uh, expressing the fact that he covers the bottom half of his face, you know, and so if he looks down just like I'm doing right now, he just sees his hand and not the ground beneath him. We'll see that there's a symbolism in that, but it may be something more significant. The idea may be here that he does this whole thing blindfolded, okay, so that he can't see at all, okay. Um, but notice verse 8, he goes through this morning performance, evening performance, and then the next morning, verse 8, the morning the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, has not the house of Israel, the rebellious house, said to you, what are you doing? Okay. Don't you have a captive audience? Aren't they all curious about the meaning of what you did? Therefore, verse 10, say to them, thus says the Lord God, this oracle concerns the prince in Jerusalem and all the house of Israel who are in it. So it's not about the current exiles, but the soon-to-be exiled. It's not about his, uh, his nearest audience, those who are living in Babylon, but those who remain in Jerusalem, including their prince, which would be Zedekiah. And so he's to tell them that it's about this, and then verse 11, say, I, Ezekiel, am a sign for you, as I've done, so it shall be done to them. They shall go into exile, into captivity. And the prince who is among them shall lift his baggage upon his shoulder at dusk and shall go out. They shall dig through the wall to bring him out through it. He shall cover his face that he may not see the land with his eyes. And so now we see that the evening performance is specifically about Zedekiah, that even the ruler of Jerusalem was going to go into exile. And interestingly enough, the other details we're given about Zedekiah here is that he'll dig a hole in a wall and that he will not see the land. And you may know from our study in Jeremiah or all the way back in 2 Kings chapter 25 that when the city is finally sacked, when the walls are breached and the Babylonians come in, the king and his closest guardians try and sneak out through the opposite place by digging a hole through the wall and they end up being caught just outside Jerusalem. Also interesting is the fact that Zedekiah, not only will he never return and see the land of Israel, he dies in the land of Babylon, but also the first action Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, takes against Zedekiah is to put out his eyes. He slaughters all of his children in front of him and then he puts out his eyes. And so this becomes a pretty good symbolic action to point to these things. In fact, notice verse 13, I will spread my net over him and he shall be taken in my snare, and I will bring him to Babylon, the land of the Chaldeans, yet he shall not see it, and he shall die there. Okay. And so all of this comes upon Zedekiah, but what's important about verse 13, as we've seen over and over again, is Ezekiel's not warning of what Babylon is going to do to the inhabitants in Jerusalem, but what God is going to do. 
It's his net that is going to capture Zedekiah. It's his attack on the city of Jerusalem. And again, remember, for Ezekiel's audience, they thought they were the offscouring, the discarded ones. They thought that it was those in Jerusalem that God had favor on, protected, and were the true remnant that God was going to take care of. And so Ezekiel, again, is to remind his people and say, no, judgment is coming upon Jerusalem. No, because of their sins, like we saw in the vision last week, there are consequences coming. In fact, notice verse 14, I will scatter towards every wind all who are around him, his helpers and his troops, and I will unsheath the sword after them. Again, notice it's the sword as if it was in God's hands and not in the Babylonian armies. Verse 15, and they shall know that I am the Lord when I disperse them among the nations and scatter them among the countries. So what is God's stated motive here? As we saw last week, it's to make himself known as God. Israel has fallen into horrible, uh, syncretic practices of worshiping all sorts of other gods of other religions, but God is going to make himself distinct. He's going to fulfill his word in such a way that they will know that he is, that he speaks, that he keeps his word, uh, and so he is going to reveal himself. Again, this repeated phrase, and they shall know that I am the Lord in Ezekiel, should remind us of the book of Exodus. In fact, Ezekiel and the exile kind of functions as a Exodus in reverse. In Exodus, God brings judgment on Israel's enemies who have enslaved them. But here he's bringing judgment on his own people. Um, but it's still, even though it's a dark picture, one being deliverance and the other being judgment, it contains or conveys the same hope, just a glimmer that God still has plans. In fact, look verse 16, but I will let a few of them escape from the sword, from famine and from pestilence, that they may declare all their abominations among the nations where they go and may know that I am the Lord. He says, I am going to leave some standing as witnesses to the wickedness of Israel and the justice of my judgment. Now another performance is given to Ezekiel, verse 17. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, eat your bread with quaking and drink water with trembling and with anxiety. Okay, And so here he's to eat his meals publicly again, but as he eats, he eats as if he's afraid, as if he's been stunned by some sort of deep trauma. He's to be shaking as he eats and to tremble with anxiety as he drinks his water. You can imagine, you know, the cup spilling as he puts it to his mouth. And then he's to say to the people, verse 19 of the land, thus says the Lord God concerning the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the land of Israel, they shall eat their bread with anxiety and drink water in dismay. In this way, her land will be stripped of all it contains on account of the violence of those who dwell in it. And the inhabited cities shall be laid waste, and the land shall become a desolation, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Okay. And so we get another layer, another picture of the same thing. It's important to remember that as Ezekiel lives out his ministry, 
He fulfills all of these callings to give these words or to act these things out. And basically, he has, especially leading up to, um, uh, up to chapter 24 and the destruction of Jerusalem, really only one message. Okay. But he has a variety of means to make that message known. And again, like we talked about in the ministry of Jeremiah, this makes sense because the people are both going to grow tired of hearing it. We've heard that before, Ezekiel. We've seen that one before, Ezekiel. You know, um, but they also, God graciously also continues to try. All right, you didn't hear this message. Let's try this one. You didn't sink in when we did this. Let's do it this way. Okay. And so, you know, I imagine some people felt like, you know, Charlie Brown and Lucy with the football, drawn into a new performance, and then, ah, it's the same as always, the same message every time. It's like when we all figured out that M. Night Shyamalan can't do a movie without a twist at the end, and now you're expecting it, and it's like, oh, look, it's just another twist. Interestingly, where the rest of chapter 12, all of chapter 13, and all of chapter 14 goes to is to address both responses to God's prophets, okay, so wrong responses to God's prophets, as well as false prophets. And so notice one of the reactions that no doubt Ezekiel knew personally, as we find in verse 21. And the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, what is this proverb that you have about the land of Israel saying the days grow long and every vision comes to nothing? Okay, so that you there in the opening, the Lord, Lord came to me, son of man, what is this proverb that you have? That's you plural. What is this proverb that you Jews living in exile have? What is this classic saying that everybody says all the time and is just a stand-in? And we're given it, notice it, the days grow long and every vision comes to nothing. In other words, God says, Ezekiel, ask the people why they all maintain it's just a bunch of talk and nothing happens. The words of Ezekiel are just as worthless as the words of all these other so, uh, say-it-alls, you know, these prophets who say they speak for God and then it doesn't mean anything. Now, to be fair, Ezekiel's ministry leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem is about a dozen years. And so he talks and basically, you know, is standing on the street corners every day saying, gloom and doom and judgment is coming and the clock ticks and the seasons go by and the years pass and nothing happens. But the attitude here is, uh, don't listen to him. Nothing he says will ever come to pass. Right? And so God addresses this. Verse 23, tell them, therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will put an end to this proverb, and they shall no more use it as a proverb in Israel. Okay? He says, I'm going to work in such a way that the proverb won't make sense. I'm going to do such a work that nobody will remember this old saying because it will be no longer proverbial. Okay. He says, but say to them, the days are near and the fulfillment of every vision. Okay. They said the days grow long and every vision is unfulfilled. And he says, no, new proverb. It's happening soon and it'll happen. Okay. And so he's directly playing on that. In fact, notice... He says, verse 24, for there shall be no more any false vision 
or flattering divination within the house of Israel, for I am the Lord, I will speak the word that I will speak, and it will be performed. It will no longer be delayed, but in your days, O rebellious house, I will speak the word and perform it, declares the Lord God. Now notice one of the problems that had led to this proverb is all of those who falsely spoke for God. All of those who said that, you know, thus saith the Lord, but were just speaking from their own educated guesses or their own self-interest or these types of things. And so prophecy had become common. We'll come back to those people in just a minute. But notice here he says the foundation of the fulfillment of a true prophecy is the one who spoke it. Again, read verse 25, for I am the Lord. I will speak the word that I will speak, and it will be performed. And then notice he says, It will no longer be delayed, but in your days, O rebellious house, I will speak the word and perform it, declares the Lord God. And so one of the responses that Ezekiel experiences in his ministry is a common response to these things. It's just talk. It's just words. It's just uh, the raving of a lunatic None of this stuff ever happens. Interestingly, when we get to the New Testament, we still find the presence of this constituency, those who just don't believe the words of the prophets. So listen to the words here of Peter in his second letter in chapter 3. Now, interestingly enough, if you were to look at 2 Peter chapter 2, it also spends some time talking about false prophets first. But notice what it says in chapter 3, verse 1. This is now the second letter that I, Peter the Apostle, am writing you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And so in the same way, Peter tells those in his day, there are those who are going to remember that Jesus said he was returning and look around and go, when? You, you Christians are always talking about the return of Christ, but it isn't happening. It hasn't happened, right? But notice how he continues here in verse 5, For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water, and though, through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world then existed, was deluged with water and perished. And so they say, look, every day is the same, every year is the same, every society is the same, time just goes on and on and on. And he goes, but they neglect the reality of the flood. They neglect that there was a time where God, according to his word, parted the heavens and poured out his judgment and flooded the earth. That day was not like other days. Okay, that was a day where God's word came to pass. But, verse 7, by the same word, The heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, 
not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Okay, And so basically he says here, the uh, reality that we're still waiting for this word to be fulfilled, for Jesus to return, for judgment, for the end of all things, is due not to God's non-existence, nor to his unfaithfulness, but to his patience. And so here, back in Ezekiel, God clarifies and he says, this judgment is coming now. This judgment you will see with your own eyes. In fact, there's a second group that has a slightly different message. The first ones are just disbelievers. The second ones are put off in a distance where it doesn't matter, folks. Verse 26, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, behold, they of the house of Israel say this vision that he sees is for many days from now. And he prophesies of a time far off. So here's a group who says, yeah, that's going to happen, but not in our days. Yes, those things are going to happen, but it won't happen to our generation. Now, I think we can envision and imagine a lot of reasons why that may be the case. In fact, it reminds me of King Hezekiah in Isaiah 39. God comes to Hezekiah. He tells him that judgment is going to fall upon Jerusalem. And part of it's due to Hezekiah's own fault. He foolishly meeting the Babylonians for the first time, goes, let me show off a little bit. Let me show you my glamour and my riches. Come into our temple and view all the beautiful things made of gold. Come into our treasury where I count my coins. See all the wealth of Israel. And all he knows at the time is that they're strangers from far off in the east. And God tells Hezekiah personally, those are the ones that I'm going to use to judge Jerusalem. But then God says, however, I'm not going to do it in your day. And it says that Hezekiah was at peace. And he said, at least for my days, things will be good. Okay. In a similar way, these ones are convinced, yes, these things will happen someday, but it's of no concern to us. It has no direct impact on our lives. They're verbally believers that these things are going to happen but practically they live as if it has no impact, no place to touch their own life. But notice how God speaks to them in verse 28. Therefore say to them, thus says the Lord God, none of my words will be delayed any longer, but the word that I speak will be performed, declares the Lord God. And remember, it's during this generation, during their lifetimes, that Jerusalem will be sacked, that the temple will be destroyed. That the people of Israel will be displaced and there will no longer be the nation of Israel. It's not going to happen someday. Ezekiel says it's going to happen now. It's going to happen during this generation. Ezekiel operates in this way as the final warning. In fact, you may remember the words that God uses of Ezekiel in the opening chapters where he says, Ezekiel, your job is to be like the watchman. The one who stands upon the walls and whose job it is to raise alarm when the armies are at the very gates. Right? And so there's a clarification here of timing. Interestingly enough, this is often how God works. 
when God proclaims what he's going to do in the Bible, it starts generally. It starts broadly. It starts big picture. And then over the course of time, God gives more details. Think of Abraham. Abraham, you're going to have a son. Come to a land that I will show you, and while you're there, I will give you a son. But it takes 25 years till God fulfills that promise. The last time that God reiterates it to Abraham, he says, I'm going to give you a son this year. Right? And so he's waiting, and he's waiting, and then it's now. We see the same thing with Jesus. I always think of the Old Testament as it looks forward to the coming of Jesus like watching a painter paint. Because just like if you watch a good painter paint, in the beginning you have just kind of uh, these shaded areas with very little details. You have the background filled in, um, but the features aren't quite clear. But as you read through the Old Testament, we go from broad prophecies. It's going to be the seed of the woman. It's going to be from the line of Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob. It's going to be through the tribe of Judah. And then you get later on, and he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And in the book of Daniel, he's going to be born in 490 years from now, right? It gets more and more specific. If you will, all the prophets of the Old Testament talk about Jesus, and their primary message is he's coming. And then we get to John the Baptist, the watchman of the Gospels, right? The forerunner of the Messiah. His message is different. It's not he's coming. His message is he's here, right? And so there is both a heightening of danger, but it is also appropriately a measure of God's graciousness. He doesn't allow them to think, even foolishly, that this is generically a far ways off. He says, no, it's right around the corner. It's happening now. Now, as we mentioned, one of the reasons why people's view of the prophetic office had loosened was because of a ton of false prophets, and now God gives Ezekiel a message for them. Chapter 13, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are prophesying and say to those who prophesy from their own hearts. Hear the word of the Lord. Can you, can you sense a little bit of poignancy in that sentence? For the prophets who have a word from their own heart Hear the word of the Lord. All the time these prophets are saying, thus says the Lord, having never heard the word of the Lord. And Ezekiel says, hey guys, I've got a word for you. Right from the Lord. And here it is, verse 3, thus says the Lord God, woe to the foolish prophets who following their own spirit have seen nothing. Your prophets have been like jackals among the ruins, O Israel. Now think of that image for a second, jackals among the ruins. Okay. Generally, that's a right and proper place for jackals. Okay. If you've seen The Lion King, it makes sense that, that the hyenas live in the elephant graveyard, right? There's, it just, it's a natural fit. In the same way, jackals are scavengers. Ruins are the byproduct of destruction, right? Of warfare. Uh, it implies corpses and goods that have been left behind and rubble and these types of things. And basically what he's saying here is all of you false prophets are parasites living off the danger that Israel is in. You're just jackals scavenging in the last minutes, 
making your living off of the destruction of others. Now, there's a little bit of irony in that. The irony is most of these prophets had only one message, which is everything's fine. Peace, peace, when there is no peace, in the words of Jeremiah. That was the message of these prophets. So it seems strange that I would say that they were profiting off the destruction of Israel. But first off, just like jackals only involve in cities when the cities are in rubbles, so the message of peace is only valuable when there's danger, right? If somebody comes into a place that is thriving and flourishing and, you know, the stock market's up and the borders are secure and everything is good and says, I have a message from the Lord, peace, nobody listens. Nobody needs to hear. It's when there's an internal sense of danger that these people can profit from saying, no, don't worry. God's told me it's all going to be okay. And so they are like the jackals. In fact, notice the contrast, verse 5 here. You've not gone up into the breaches or built up a wall for the house of Israel that it might stand in the battle in the day of the Lord. So in the moral rubble of Israel, when there's breaches in the armor, when there's danger, right? Imagine a guy whose job it is to inspect the ship that everybody's on and he finds leaks and he knows about the leaks, and he decides to tell everybody it's fine, right? His job is to find the leaks. His job is to plug the leaks. In the same way, the prophet's primary role were not like weathermen, right? They weren't just to prognosticate the future. They weren't to lay out what was going to happen next in the story. They were to call Israel to repentance. That was their job. That's what they were supposed to do. And so instead of seeking to rebuild Israel morally by calling them back to God, they live out the final hours before judgment, living, making a living off of a false message. Okay. It says here that they didn't stand in the gap. Right? The idea there is a military one that if you have a breach in a wall, the only way to keep the enemy outside is to put yourself in in the breach, to stand in the way of the enemy. But they don't do that. They, they don't take any sacrifice or danger upon themselves. Instead, they're warmongers. They're jackals. They benefit from this. They fill their pockets. God makes clear here in verse 6, they have seen false visions and lying divinations. They say, declares the Lord, when the Lord has not sent them, and yet they expect him to fulfill their word. Have you not seen a false vision and uttered a lying divination? Whenever you have said, declares the Lord, although I have not spoken. So there's almost an appeal directly to their conscience. Right? To the audience, it's a little bit harder for them to know who the prophet is. There's instructions given in Deuteronomy 18. Here's how you'll know if a prophet was sent from the Lord. Number one, what he says happens. But that takes time, right? You have to wait and see. Their message is peace, peace. Everything's going to be fine. In fact, one of their specific messages during this day that Ezekiel is prophesying during this window between the first exile and the last exile, the message is everything's going to be reversed. Jehoiachin, all the exiles in Babylon, they're going to be brought back. Everything that was looted from the temple is going to be restored and everything will be fine. 
And so people are waiting and seeing. People are building their lives on this foundation. They're acting as if everything's okay. They're not repenting. They're not returning to the Lord. They're not even, uh, you know, mourning over their sins. <clears throat> but here, Ezekiel appeals directly to the prophets and he says, guys, you know better. Look inside yourself. You know that you have falsely spoken that the Lord has not sent you. Therefore, verse 8, thus says the Lord God, because you have uttered falsehoods and seen lying visions, therefore, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord God. My hand will be against the prophets who sees false visions, who gives lying divinations. They shall not be in the council of my people, nor be enrolled in the registry of the house of the Israel, nor shall they enter the land of Israel, <clears throat> and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Okay. Now I want you to notice two things here. First, throughout this chapter, as God is addressing the false prophets, he talks about my people Israel. That's surprising in the book of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel, it's not the house of Israel, it's the rebellious house. In Ezekiel, it's not my people Israel, it's your people Ezekiel. But here, when he talks to the false prophets, he uses my people because he wants to make clear that what they have done is not just a sin against their you know, countrymen, but against God himself. They have misled his people. They have been a false shepherd to his sheep, and they will be held accountable as such. And notice their judgment here is that there will be no future for them. They will be scrubbed from the roster of Israel. They will never return to the land, right? Their, uh, their legacy ends here, if you will. God promises judgment upon them. There's a portion near the end of the book of Jude where Jude makes a distinction between how we as Christians speak to and handle the deceived and how we as Christians speak to and handle the deceiver. Okay. And let me remind you, that takes a little bit of discernment. Okay. For me personally, error, because I believe that it's dangerous, gets me all energized, hot and bothered, worried. It makes me loud. It makes me yell. Okay. And so it's, it's important to stop and, and recognize the difference here, that it calls for something different. Okay. Uh, there can be a sheep who's deceived and there can be a wolf who's devouring sheep. It calls for a different tactic, right? Here, Ezekiel is basically laying out the direct judgment on these people because, again, not only have they made their living at Israel's expense, but they have misled God's people. And so he's going to hold them accountable, and so their judgment is strong. In fact, notice here in verse 10, precisely because they have misled my people, saying, peace, when there is no peace, and because when the people build a wall, these prophets smear it with whitewash. Okay, here's the idea here. When you make a wall out of loose stones, you can make it well, and you can make it poorly. And what these prophets should be doing, again, as the prophets of Israel, is measuring the walls, looking at them and going, that is not a solid wall. Looking in and going, this is really weak. It needs to be torn down and rebuilt. Remember, that was the ministry of Jeremiah, right? To destroy and to rebuild. To pluck up and to replant. But instead, these guys come along and they go, 
you know what would make that wall better? Let's just cover it up. Let's just put a thin whitewash or, uh, or smear, um, you know, some, some caulking across the edge of it, and then it looks fine. It looks smooth and bright and clean and strong, but internally it's the same wall. The idea here is that instead of properly diagnosing the issue as a doctor and doing surgery, they just cover it up with a band-aid, give it a little kiss and say, everything's fine, right? They settle for an external promise that things are fine and don't address the deeper issues. Verse 11, say to those who smear it with whitewash, it shall fall. There will be a deluge of rain, and you, O great hailstones, will fall, and a stormy wind will break out. And when the wall falls, will it not be said to you, where is the coating with which you smeared it? Okay. Imagine that you hire a man to come and repair a wall. You know, it's one in your back garden, You've noticed that some of the stones are loose, it's a little wobbly, maybe even it's even leaning. And so you hire this contractor, he says, I'll take care of it. You're out of town for a while, you come home and the wall looks great. He's covered it with this whitewash, he's polished it all up, it looks great, it's straightened up. And then you hit a Seattle winter and it rains for 30 days straight like it just did. And the wall falls over, right? You come to the contractor and you go, wait a minute. I was picking through, and all you did was put this outer coating on. You didn't restore the wall at all, right? That's the idea here. It's the seriousness of what they've done. God says it's not going to stand up in the storm, even though it looks good on the outside. Verse 14, he says, I will break down the wall that you have smeared with whitewash and bring it down to the ground so that its foundation will be laid bare. When it falls, you shall perish in the midst of it, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Now that is a hard lesson. God basically says, because you've done such a poor job, there's no safety net. There's no protection. In fact, the wall is going to fall on you, and you'll be crushed by its weight. But I want you to remember again that all the things God is saying here is built in the context of that earlier message, which is what? Repent. It's a warning of what's coming, but it's not an unavoidable one. Verse 16, the prophets of Israel who prophesied concerning Jerusalem and saw visions of peace for her when there was no peace, declares the Lord. Now there's a second category that he addresses here in verse 17. And you, son of man, set your face against the daughters of your people who prophesy out of their own minds. Okay. There's another group of prognosticators in Israel who are being very successful, who also are not speaking for the Lord and are misleading the people. Now, as we'll see when we read here, uh, these are not, thus saith the Lord, prophets, but they're more like magicians or psychics or astrologers. What they do, uh, the Hebrew here evokes the idea of magic, okay? And so this isn't about the big public, what will happen to Israel, but this is about the private life of individuals. Okay? Now, again, there's a correlation here. Because these people are misleading Israelites by promising them protection 
when there is no protection, by, um, by evoking, in fact, spiritual authorities that are not for Israel to be dealing with. All of these things are outlined in the book of Deuteronomy. God was to be sufficient for Israel. He was to be their protection. And so they're not just like the other prophets, putting a band-aid over a real problem. They're actually perpetuating the problem. They're not just um, unhelpful in Israel worshiping God, but cultivating the worship of other beings and powers and principalities. Okay, and so notice he says, speak to them, verse 18, say, thus says the Lord God, woe to the women who sew magic bands upon all the wrists and make veils for the heads of persons of every stature in the hunt for souls. Now we know very little about the practices that are being stated here involving uh, some sort of bracelets and veils. Okay? But notice what God calls it. He calls it the hunt for souls. He sees it again as being predatory. In fact, notice he continues here, will you hunt down souls belonging to my people and keep your own souls alive? Okay. In other words, he's saying, are you going to live off of others? Are you going to devour other people? Are you going to mislead the other people for a living? Verse 19, you've profaned me among my people for handfuls of barley and for pieces of bread. Okay. One of the differences, one of the distinctions between God's prophets in the Old Testament and these folks is the paycheck. Remember going back to Elijah. There's an occasion where somebody comes to Elijah for a prophecy and he comes prepared to pay him handsomely. And he refuses and he says, I'm not into your money, but here's what the Lord says. Right? And then his servant runs after the guy and goes, you know, my master changed his mind. We'll just take just the two tunics on the top that are nice and just a little bit of silver. Right? And it ends up costing him his life. Why does God care so much about this relationship? Because his allegiance cannot be bought. Okay. And this is, this is the thing about magic. I, I don't know if you guys saw this, but I read an article last month about the only American detective who focuses on psychics. His whole job is to look for when people who have been taken advantage of by psychics and investigate them until they can build up enough evidence to send these people to jail. And it is unlike anything I realized. I'm talking about tens of thousands of dollars that people have been taken, you know, uh, to buy a golden pyramid that will be put in a special place in your honor. And you can, you can be returned the money at any point and just this huge you know, woven deception that draws people in and ekes out a living. Um, it, it, is, it is really a wild thing, and apparently it's the same thing that's going on here in Israel. But we should, we should question those who tie very closely the favor and the word of God with the lining of their own pockets. Here they do it for bread and handfuls of barley, and you can imagine why then their message is one of positive, of protection and peace. Because it's good for business, right? If you went to somebody for, for these types of things and they just gave you the gloom and doom message, how many people are you going to refer, right? 
But if they come and they promise you success and wealth, right, it's good for business. Again, these so-called prophets, these so-called prophetess, these uh, whatever they were, were profiting off of Israel. And he says, for pieces of bread and then for putting to death souls who should not die and keeping alive souls who should not live by your lying to my people who listen to lies. Okay, the idea here is not that these men and women are actually killing people. Okay. The idea here is that they're saying to those who are in real danger, no danger. And apparently it's just as concerning to God those who lie and, um, uh, and keep alive souls who should not live. Uh, in other words, those who make positive reviews of evil. Those who call good evil and evil good are the ones that are being talked, uh, talked about here. And I have to say, honestly, for me personally, I find a good deal of relief that God cares about these things and will hold these people accountable. I don't think any of us has lived a short enough or a sheltered enough life to not encounter religious charlatans of one sense or another. People who take advantage, like Paul says, uh, of, of widows in their houses and take, care, take advantage of their good nature to rob them blind, my paraphrase. But God cares about these things. He sees these things. He's going to act on these things. And although judgment is coming on all of Jerusalem, God makes a distinction here, doesn't he, between the people and the prophets, between the deceived and the deceiver, between those who misled and those who were misled. Verse 20, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I'm against your magic bands with which you hunt souls like birds. I'll tear them from your arms and I'll let the souls whom you hunt go free, their souls like birds. Your veils I will also tear off and deliver my people out of your hand and they shall be no more in your hand as prey and you shall know that I am the Lord. Because you have disheartened the righteous falsely, although I have not grieved him. And you have encouraged the wicked that he should not turn from his evil way to save his life. Effectively here we see that they're anti-prophets. They do the exact opposite of what they're supposed to do. Verse 23, therefore you shall no more see false visions nor practice divination. Okay. Now notice that's a somewhat veiled threat. What would it lead for these people to no longer see false visions? What does it mean to not see something you didn't see the first time, right? But the idea here is, I'm going to put an end to your career. But obviously, he's going to do that by putting an end to their life. He says, I will deliver my people out of your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. All right. So what happens next here in chapter 14 is, again, we find elders of Israel ones who are living in exile, uh, uh, Ezekiel's neighbors, respectable people in the Babylonian exile community, come to him to hear for, uh, from the Lord, to sit at Ezekiel's feet and go, what does the Lord want to speak to us? Now, we saw this last week in Ezekiel. Uh, we've seen it in uh, the ministry of Elijah and in Jeremiah. But let's notice what happens on this occasion. Chapter 14, verse 1. Then certain of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts 
and set the stumbling block of, it, of their iniquity before their faces. Should indeed I let myself be consulted by them? So notice here, God sees those who have come for, inqu- for inquiry. He sees what's going on in their hearts. And he says, there's something that doesn't line up here. They come and they're interested in my opinion, but not enough to be obedient. They come and they believe that I can speak into their lives, but they continue to worship other gods, worship other idols, uh, to put the stumbling block in front of their face. In other words, uh, notice what he asks here. He says, should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? Verse 4, therefore speak to them and say to them, thus says the Lord God. So he says, should I even be talking to them? And he says, I do have a message for them. So they've come. What is the word of the Lord? God sees what's going on in their heart. Now, what are they interested in? Probably the same major issues that we've been reading about in the book. The fate of Jerusalem. The return of Israel. These types of things. And so God does speak to them, but notice what he speaks to them about. Verse 4, Therefore speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Any one of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols, that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel, who are estranged from me through their idols. Okay. Now, it can be a little bit convoluted to try and draw out what exactly the message is, but basically he starts by saying, those who come with idols in their heart, I'm going to address them as those with idols in their heart. And so there's only one message to give. Verse 6, Therefore thus says the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, Repent! Okay. In other words, God says, For you, elders of Israel, I have only one message. You've got to get rid of the idols. Okay. We're not going to talk about your uh, you know, 401k. We're not going to talk about your retirement plan. We're not going to consider the areas in the church that you might serve. We're not going to talk about the future of Israel or God's plans for anything else. God has one and one simple word for you. Repent. Okay. Now, that is of direct employ for us today, but it does require a little bit of balance. Because the Bible makes clear that although God has fully forgiven us in Jesus Christ, And that God will complete what he has started in us till the day of Christ Jesus. And there will be a day where you will no longer struggle with sin, give in to sin. Sin won't even be present in your life anymore. You will be made new like Jesus was. You will be perfect like Jesus was. You will be righteous as Jesus is. What that means is, until that happens, you still need Jesus. Until that happens, you still struggle with sin. Until that happens, it's still a part and parcel of your life. In fact, the sins that are impacting you the most right now are not the ones that you're currently fighting. They're the ones that you don't see. They're the ones that you don't know about. Okay. This is what's wrong with these ideas of sinless perfectionism. That if we just pray enough, or if we just trust the Spirit enough, or if we just follow God close enough, we won't sin. That's a misunderstanding of how we actually are as human beings. Okay. You are a work in progress, but God is working those things out of you, and that takes time. Okay. So what I'm saying is, 
You don't need to feel like you have a perfect track record to come before the Lord and ask for his help or for his guidance or any of those things, okay? But you have to come willing to repent. What if the way he wants to guide you is to lay his finger on something? Can you come like the psalmist did and say, search my heart, O God, see if there's any wrong thing in me? These leaders are going, well, yeah, I know I've got this thing, but I'm going to keep this thing, but I'm still interested in your opinion on this other area. I'm going to continue to maintain this practice. I'm unrepentant of it. I don't really care for your opinion. I know what you think, and I don't care. But let's talk about this over here. Okay. This is a very minor illustration, but this is always the way I think of this. That's like going to your boss and saying, hey, what would you like me to do? And him saying, well, did you take care of that project that I assigned to you? And going, no, I haven't done that yet. It doesn't make any sense. The major issue in Israel's inbox right now is idolatry. That's what led to Babylon. If they still haven't dealt with that, there is no round two. There is no next step. There is no moving forward. In other words, Ezekiel basically says, did I stutter? We've talked about this before. You already know what God's will is, and we should recognize the insecurity as well as the hypocrisy of trying to compartmentalize our lives with God and say, this place you have full rule and reign, but not this place. I'm interested in your provision and your protection but not where you would command me to obedience. Okay. And so he says, I have one message for you. Repent and turn away from your idols. Turn away your faces from all abominations. Verse 7, for any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel, who separates himself from me, taking his idols into his heart and putting the stumbling block of iniquity before his face, and yet comes to a prophet to consult me through him, I, the Lord, will answer him myself. And I will set my face against that man. I will make him a sign and a byword and cut him off from the midst of my people. And you shall know that I am the Lord. Okay, so in other words, he says, I still have a revelation for you. I'm still going to reveal myself to you. You're still going to see me for all that I am. It reminds me of what Jesus warns. He says, look, if you're on your way to the courthouse with your accuser, do the smart thing and settle along the way. Don't wait until the evidence is handed over to the judge and you're, caught, you're thrown in jail. Every five-year-old sibling knows this, right? When they run for mom, you run after them and you go, hey, wait a minute, right? But the problem with Israel is, is they're walk, knocking right on the judge's door and saying, hey, can we talk? And the judge says, I have you on the docket for today. I was expecting you. Yes, we can talk, right? And so he says, he's going to stretch out his hand against him. He will destroy them from the midst of his people, Israel, verse 10, and they shall bear their punishment. The punishment of the prophet and the punishment of the inquirer shall be alike, that the house of Israel may no more go astray from me, nor defile themselves anymore with all their transgressions. Now, I mentioned earlier this distinction that God makes between deceiver and deceived, but we see there's a little bit of an asterisk here. He says, I'm going to judge them alike because these false prophets tell the people what they want to hear. 
Because the reason why they go to them instead of going to Ezekiel is because it allows them to continue living against their conscience and against the word of God and continue on in the way they are. They're a match made, I was going to say in heaven, but I guess I would say in hell. They're compatible, right? It's itching ears and a lying tongue and they go together. And so he says the judgment is going to come on both of these groups of people together Verse 11, though, notice that the house of Israel may no more go astray from me, nor defile themselves any more with their transgressions, but that they may be my people, and I may be their God, declares the Lord God. And so he speaks here in terms of discipline, and he says, I'm going to do this to purify you of these things. I was speaking with a man today from another state who I've never met. He just called me because he saw saw something that I'd done online and we were talking. And he grew up in the church and he, because he grew up in the church, was protected from all sorts of things that he could have done. But as he grew up and became an adult, he had an opportunity to go and ply his wares and sow his wild oats and do all the things he always thought he wanted to do. And he was at that for 15 years. And then he kind of woke up, realized that he missed Jesus and he came back. And he told me, he's like, I didn't find anything out there to be what I thought it was when I was looking for it. Effectively, God, in a harder version here, tells Israel, I'm going to let you have your way. I'm going to let you walk that path as far as it leads. Have you ever thought about Jesus' parable of the two sons, the one we call the prodigal son, but there's two sons in it, right? Have you ever thought about the fact that the father comes and offensively says, Dad, I know you're going to give me my inheritance when I die, but I'd rather have it now because I'm done with you and I just want to go my way, right? It's the equivalent, especially in an honor culture, of saying, I wish you were dead. Have you ever thought about the fact that the father doesn't fight him on that? That he lets him go? And the truth is, apparently, because this is how the parable goes, he stands at the window and looks longingly every day waiting for his son to return. But he lets him go. Effectively, what God does here is he allows Israel, not without warning, not without opportunities to return, but he allows them to walk the full length and go, all right, you're going to trust in these false gods. Let's see how they do for you. All right, you're going to walk these paths. Let's see where they lead. And it is a truth of human nature, isn't it, that we are prone to prefer the hard way to see for ourselves. And in the national level, this is what God has done with Israel. He goes, all right, let's just let this go where it leads, and he knows that what he's going to have at the end of this is a people who are disillusioned by the falsehoods of idolatry. Which is insane. It's insane that even in judgment, God is gracious. It's insane that his intentions are still good even when he's harsh. It's insane that he still has plans and a future for Israel who has neglected him and left him, uh, who in the words of Jeremiah has divorced him. And he's still saying, but there's so many good years left in our marriage. Verse 12, And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, When a land sins against me by acting faithlessly, 
And I stretch out my hand against it, and I break its supply of bread and send famine upon it and cut it off from man and beast. Okay. Now, notice here we have a hypothetical, and it's generic. When any nation turns against me, God says, acts faithlessly, and I bring judgment upon it. Whether it was Israel or Egypt, it doesn't matter. If this happens, verse 14, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord. And so he says, even if these three men were contemporaries, and they weren't, they lived generations apart, right? Noah being the oldest, and then, um, and then Job would be during the days of Abraham, and then Daniel would be a contemporary to Ezekiel's audience. He says, even if all three of them were in this nation, I wouldn't spare the nation, just these three men. Now, we saw that one of the reasons why Israel didn't repent is because of the message of the false prophets. But here's another one. Maybe they were banking on the presence of some people who were righteous enough. Well, I don't really need to toe the line because there's these people over here, right? And he says, let's get one thing straight here. In fact, there is a scriptural precedent here, but first let's look at these three men. Noah, the one righteous man delivered with his family in the days of the flood. Job, who suffers so tremendously as a demonstration of his righteousness, right? And Daniel, a contemporary shining beacon of what a good Jew looks like who has a reputation of, even though he's serving in the highest court of Nebuchadnezzar himself, remains undefiled, speaks the truth honestly. You know, think of his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they're all called to bow down, and they all refuse, right? Paragons of virtue. And it probably should remind us of the conversation that Abraham has with God, all the way back in Genesis 18. God reveals to Abraham that he's going to bring judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, and the first thing Abraham thinks of is his family there, Lot and Lot's wife and his daughters, who would be Lot's uh, cousin. Uh, sorry, Abraham would be Lot's uncle, uh, so his nephew, and then his family. And so he thinks of these, and he says, God, you're a just judge. You won't judge the righteous with the wicked, right? And God says, if I find 50 righteous men in that city... I'll spare the whole thing. And Abraham pushes. He says, what about 40? God says, same plan. How about 25? Even so. All the way down to 10. And he says, if I even find 10 men, I'll spare the whole city. But he doesn't find 10 men. He finds Lot. Okay. But remember how the story goes? There's this kind of horrific night in Sodom. And in the morning, the angels say, Lot, Tell your family to pack your bags. We've got to get out of here. And he kind of hems and haws, and he's like, what? this is where I live. Can I stay here? And he's like, no, you don't understand. We can't do what comes next until you're out of the way because God is righteous, and he won't judge the wicked with the righteous. He's going to remove them first. Okay. In the same way here, God says, in this circumstance, the righteous are spared for their righteousness, and the wicked are judged. Let's repeat it again. How about another hypothetical? Verse 15. If I cause wild beasts to pass through the land and they ravage it 
and it may be made desolate so no one may pass through because of beasts. Even if these three men were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters. They alone would be delivered, but the land would be desolate. Or if I bring a sword upon that land and say, let the sword pass through the land, and I cut, cut off from it man and beast, those, these, though these three men were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither their sons nor their daughters, but they alone would be delivered. Or if I send a pestilence into that land and pour out my wrath upon it with blood to cut it off from it man and beast, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither son nor daughter. They would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness. Now we get the point of this incredibly redundant hypothetical. For thus says the Lord God, verse 21, how much more when I send upon Jerusalem my four disastrous acts of judgment, sword, famine, wild beast, and pestilence, to cut off from it man and beast? Okay. He says, I would be faithful to act this way with any nation. He says, but how much more with Israel? Because remember, Israel was a privileged nation. They knew on paper the will of God. They had the temple, and before that, the tabernacle, and the Levitical priesthood, and the sacrifices, a means to deal with sin. They had every advantage, and so he says, how much more will I be just here? Verse 22, but behold, some survivors will be left in it. He says, I'd be just to wipe you all out. He's like, but there will be survivors. It's not because of their righteousness, but because of God's mercy and his abundant plan. Verse 22 again. Some survivors will be left in it, sons and daughters, who will be brought out. Behold, when they come out to you and you see their ways and their deeds, you will be consoled for the disaster that I've brought upon Jerusalem for all that I've brought upon it. Now again, those are pretty hard words. Effectively, he says, when this is done and over, you're going to understand my plan. You're going to go... Oh, I see what you did there. I understand what you were doing. In fact, isn't there kind of an implication on that? It says they'll be consoled for the disaster. You'll go, oh, this is worth it. That's hard to believe. The author of Hebrews says that nobody enjoys discipline while it happens. Right? As if that even needs to be the Bible. It seems pretty self-evident. But the point is, even Israel is going to come out of this and see what God has done and not just say you were right to punish us, but wow, look at what God accomplished through this. Verse 23, they will console you when you see their ways and their deeds and you shall know that I have not done without cause all that I have done in it declares the Lord. A lot of times when we look at our own life, and the things that we're going through. Whether we can trace the lines between uh, you know, what we deserve and don't deserve or not. Whether our suffering seems to be self-induced or completely out of nowhere. And we ask the natural question, why God? Sometimes those struggles can get so strong we begin to doubt God's existence or his goodness. Or we throw in the towel and just give up entirely on life and on the Lord. But isn't it possible that when all is said and done, 
when we know as we are known, when we're fully mature in Christ, isn't it possible that we could look back and go, oh, I see what you did there. When I was a kid, what grade was that? Sixth grade, they built a brand new middle school. I'm part of one of those boom generations, so they had to build an entirely new school for my kids. And so I went through middle school and junior high in our district. So they built this brand new middle school, they broke it into four quadrants, and they didn't put me with the kids I had gone to school with my entire life. In fact, I remember sitting down in the class with the same classmates I'd had for six years, and the teacher went down the roster and my name wasn't called. And I raised my hand and pointed it out, and she said, oh. And they called down to the office and they said, oh, you're in the wrong wing. And I found out the reason for the mix-up was that I had done uh, decently in math, and they put me in an advanced math class and moved me to another wing. And I wept, and I bawled, and I begged my parents to make them fix it. I didn't want to be with all those people. I don't care a lick about that today. In fact, I can tell you honestly that the kids I met that year, they're my best friends now. They're the ones that survived college with me and into adult life. One of them moved to this very city when I planted this church just to be with me. I think we all have stories like that where we we acted like children with the knowledge of children until we were adults with the knowledge of adults. Isn't it at least possible that the hardest and most mystifying things in your life, they're going to make sense when you see all? That's the promise God makes for Israel, and I honestly believe it's a promise that stands for us as well. Let's finish up with chapter 15 tonight. This is a short one. And the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, how does the wood of the vine surpass any wood, the vine branch that is among the trees of the forest? Okay. So a comparison is made here between an oak tree and a grapevine. He says, how do they compare? How how do you use them? Verse 3, is wood taken from it to make anything? Do people make a peg from it to hang a vessel on it? Okay. Do we make stakes out of grapevines? My mom's pretty crafty, so I know personally that you can make a wreath out of grapevines. But you can't make anything with structural integrity. Okay? You don't make something strong out of it. You don't build a house out of grapevines. Okay? Verse 4, behold, it's given to the fire for fuel. So what does Israel use grapevines on? When they trim their grapevines and they have all of those branches, they don't build furniture, they build fires. Because that's all it's good for. In fact, notice here that grapevines aren't better firewood. It's just all it's good for. He says, when the fire is consumed both ends of it and the middle of it is charred, is it useful for anything? Is the fire something that just improves it like metal, right? You pass it through and now you have something stronger. No, you just destroy it. He says, verse 5, behold, when it was whole, It was used for nothing. How much less when the fire has consumed it and it's charred can it ever be used for anything? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest to which I have given to the fire for fuel, so I have given the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Okay. And so he he says here, basically, if I brought judgment on Jerusalem... And the remnant staying in Jerusalem is just a charred leftover grapevine. What do you think the next step is? It's just to throw it, you know, where the hot embers are so it can finish it off. 
That's all that's left. Now, notice there is a poignant underlying thing here. Why does he use the grapevine for an image? It's because actually grapevines do something that oak trees don't do. In fact, grapevines throughout the Old Testament and the New are a picture of God's plan for Israel. He tended a garden. He built a wall. He planted this tender shoot. He fertilized it and watered it and gave it everything it needed so that it could do what it was supposed to do, bear fruit. But now he's lopped off the unfruitful branches. And the question is, what is he going to do with those? Jesus says the same thing in his Uh, In John chapter 15, when he talks about himself, he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Abide in me and you will bear fruit. And he says, but those who do not abide in me will be cut off and cast into the fire. Basically, he says, God's a good gardener. What he's after is fruit. That's what he's looking for. And the point he's making here is, Jerusalem, don't think highly of yourself because you're still standing. This is just judgment in two parts. There's just an interlude here. It's like, again, that doesn't mean that there's no other possibility. There is. Bear fruit. Be the vine you're supposed to be. But if they have chosen to just be a grapevine branch, if they've neglected their purpose, then the future holds judgment. He says, verse 7, I'll set my face against them. Though they escape from the fire, the fire shall yet consume them. And you will know that I am the Lord when I set my face against them. And I will make the land desolate because they have acted faithlessly, declares the Lord God. Now, we've looked at this from a lot of angles. And let me just close by looking at one last one. Sometimes we're overly sensitive and we think if something bad has happened in our life, it's because God is mad at us. Now, if you're a Christian, that's not actually a possibility. There is no wrath for us. As Christians, Jesus paid for every drop of what you deserved yesterday, today, and tomorrow. That's why Paul says we can rejoice, Romans chapter 5, in our suffering since we've been justified. Since we know that we're fully forgiven, nothing comes into our life is merely just judgment. And so Paul says we can rejoice in our suffering because suffering produces. Whatever God lets into your life is productive, produces endurance and endurance character and character hope, and that hope won't let you down, Paul says. Okay. But we can only rejoice in that because we've been justified, seen as fully righteous in Christ, fully forgiven. Okay. So sometimes we're overly sensitive to those things, but we need to recognize there's the opposite problem. There's also the ability to have things happen in your life and be blind to the fact that it's exactly what you should have expected to get exactly what you deserve. It's fully possible for these people in Israel who have devoted themselves for generations to worshiping every God but the God who saved them, to have this judgment happen in Jerusalem and come up with extenuating circumstances that had nothing to do with their behavior. Oh, it's just coincidence. Oh, it's just those crazy Babylonians. Oh, it's probably just because of that. That's the problem that Ezekiel's trying to break down. He goes, will you just wake up and see this for what it is? And again, at the end of the day, God's going to keep their hand against them long enough until they can no longer see any other possibility except that God was in this, that he was working, that he was bringing judgment.
And I think we see two motivations there. One is the one that we've touched on all night long, which is God really is that gracious that he would keep it up as long as there's a hope for repentance, that he doesn't allow us to come to these false conclusions that would rob us of the possibility of returning to the God that loves us. But there is another one, which is just that the reality of God is inescapable. And you can ignore it, and you can deny it, and you can imagine all sorts of other ways, but eventually all people have to face it. When it says here over and over again, and you shall know that I am God, that refers to every person, past, present, and future, living and dead. All of them will stand at the end of the time knowing that they know that they know that God is God. In fact, I read a book this week that suggested that's probably one of the most torturous realities of hell. It's having to know who you really are having to know that God really is. But for us, that's the gift. That's the goodness. That's the blessing. Listen to these words out of Revelation. John here, at the tail end of his vision, in verse 2, says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with him, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Father, I pray that you'd continue to conform our hearts until that is our joyous hope, that one day God himself will be with us as our God. We thank you for your goodness tonight, your goodness to warn, your goodness to discipline, even your goodness to judge. We pray, Lord, that we would be um, soft in heart, swift in repentance, that your kindness would lead us again and again to repentance. And we thank you as well, Lord, that this is only where your story begins, but it culminates when you send your son to take on flesh, to enter into the world not as a judge, but as a savior that you took all of our sins upon your shoulders, that you bore the entirety of our penalty for them, and that you offer forgiveness and newness of life. And you did it all so that we might be with you, so that we would be your people, and that you would be our God. We praise you for that tonight. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have a good night.